Think with me, what is the object of your faith? I think many of us will have that knee-jerk reaction, that Sunday school answer that will say, Jesus is the object of my faith, right? But I want to poke on that a little bit. Does your faith actually reflect a faith that is truly grounded and embedded in the bedrock of Jesus, not just as our friend, not just as the one that helps us, not just as the one who gives us our dreams or whatever we might want, but as Jesus as God, as what Scripture says that he is. What would a faith such as that actually look like? It's my hope and prayer this morning that we will see through the Holy Spirit's help today, through the example of Peter and the people of Genesaret, what such a faith would look like. Let's jump in. I read the passage for us, but last week to review, we looked at a very famous miracle, if not the most famous miracle, Jesus feeding the 5,000, or really more close to the 10,000, 10,000 plus, feeding them with a lunch from a little kid. And we saw him doing that miracle for several reasons, but one of them was to confront the disciples with their selfishness and their lack of ownership, their lack of compassion on the crowd. And we saw the power of God revealed as his disciples took that responsibility seriously in church. We are called to do the same. But while our power is weak and finite, right, we rely on God's power, which is strong, matchless, and infinite. God's power is not, and he delights to use and use us to display that power. Just think about that. We talked about that at at, uh, our care group last week just a little bit as we thought through that. The reality that this is all I got, Lord. All I got is five loaves and two fish. But yet he takes that in our lives and he multiplies that for his glory. We don't have it, but he does. And he provides the abundance for his glory. This week, we're going to continue to see Jesus show his miraculous power as the son of God. But this time, confronting the disciples in their understanding of faith. Once again, in chapter 14, set the table in verse 22. Immediately again, he made the disciples get into the boat, go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So, so Jesus, or Matthew rather, tells us that Jesus immediately makes the disciples go. And we recall maybe last week why that was so. John 6 reminded us after the miracle, the people knew exactly who was standing in their midst. They knew that it was Jesus the Messiah. They knew that Jesus was God. And they were trying to force him to become king and lead this rebellion then, as they so thought, against Rome and and, and take the country of Israel back from this oppressing nation. So this scene had to be somewhat chaotic. It had to be somewhat tense. Jesus is now diffusing that situation, says, you guys in the boat, let's go out of here, shoves them off. He dismisses the crowd And then Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. And think back to the beginning of our passage last week, right? Wasn't that what Jesus was trying to do in the first place? And then those thousands of people showed up and wanted him to do more things for them, teach them, heal them. And so so Jesus finally then, after this day or so, now gets to be by himself, which is what he wanted. Recall why he wanted to be by himself from last week in the first place? It was because... His friend, his cousin, his prophet, his forerunner, John the Baptist, had been executed by King Herod. He was grieving 
He was processing this. And then again, thrust right again into ministry. He was trying to get alone, but now he has that time to get alone and process and to grieve. And what does he do? He prays. Our text tells us that he goes up and he prays. And right there, we, we can stop and we can think, what do we do when we're alone? What do we do in those moments where we are just overwhelmed, where we need to process something that's going on? Do we stop? Do we pray? Do we even think to be alone in silence and solitude and in prayer? Do we warm our hearts with the truth of Scripture or of good books that cause our hearts to be full of the truth of, of who God is? Or just do we maybe check out and stare at our phone and look at Instagram for 45 minutes until we feel like kind of moving on? This is a consistent spiritual discipline of Jesus, church. New Testament is full of references of Jesus getting alone to pray. We think of the night before his crucifixion. What did he do? He went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed, and he agonized. Then he asked if there was any way that this cup could pass, and of course it could not. And he says, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. Time and time again, we see Jesus in times of stress modeling for us what we should do. Go to God in prayer. And so, church, we need to do that. And if Jesus himself believed that he needed to spend time in prayer, Jesus believed he needed to spend time in prayer. How come there's only 15 people that show up to prayer meeting? How come, how come we don't value prayer like that? This is Jesus, the Son of God, saying, I need to get away and I need to pray. Sure, we need to pray corporately as a church, but in the context of this passage, we need to pray like Jesus. We need to get alone and pray. Matthew Henry gives us further conviction and says, those are not Christ's followers who cannot enjoy being alone with God and their own hearts. That's the thing, right? Sometimes we don't want to be alone with our own hearts because our hearts are going to start talking to us. We don't want to hear what our hearts have to say. But if we're Christians, that's the Holy Spirit talking to us, is it not? We're reminded that. He's drawing us. He's working on us. We have to be enjoying being alone with God. Silence and solitude is a neglected spiritual discipline, church. If we don't have time to pray, well, maybe there are some things that need to go from your schedule Maybe we need to have the attitude of Martin Luther, where he said famously, I have so much to do today that I need to spend the first three hours of the day in prayer. I don't think we have that attitude, do we? That attitude of Martin Luther, he says, I'm not going to be able to do what I have on my to-do list today without spending time in prayer. What is your spiritual routine of praying? How important do you believe it to be? If Jesus believed it was important, how much more should we believe it to be important. Jesus believed prayer was vital and he made the time to do it. And so while Jesus is having this solitary prayer time, what are the disciples doing? And we'll get back to our text after that momentary excursus into conviction land that I hope you all felt like I did. Verse 24 tells us, he says, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land. It was beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Okay, so the disciples are in the boat. They're trying to get across the lake, 
and it isn't going well. Here's a picture of a Galilean fishing boat that you have just so you get an idea of what that looks like. It fits 12 people nicely, but it's not the most sturdy boat. It's going to be thrown around a lot, but this was a typical Galilean fishing boat. Mark's account tells us that the disciples were making headway painfully, trying to sail against the wind and the waves, and they're not getting very far. And evidently, a storm has come up, and storms are likely in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is set in between, uh, right in a bowl, kind of. And air comes right off the Mediterranean Sea, comes right into that bowl, and starts these big storms there. still happens to this day. John's account tells us that they've actually rowed, by this time, three to four miles into the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is probably about eight miles wide at its widest point. And the disciples are in the boat, they're getting pummeled by a storm, and then what they see is hard to believe. Look at verse 25 again. It says, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear like little girls, sorry. But immediately, Jesus spoke to him, saying, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. The fourth watch of the night, so between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., according to the, the way the Romans broke down the watches of the night, Matthew says he came to them. He's not in a boat. He is not in a jet ski. He is walking across the Sea of Galilee on the surface of the water in the middle of the storm towards the disciples. And, of course, this is another example of a miracle. Now hit pause. I've been saying this all along. We're talking about miracles here, and if you're going to believe in God, you're going to have to believe in miracles. If God exists, miracles exist. We've got to say that. We've got to understand that. And so what we believe, again, this is a literal event. This is not a a, uh, metaphor for something else. This is not an allegory or anything. This is an actual event that has happened. Jesus is miraculously walking across the surface of the water. Yes, I know that it's scientifically impossible. I get it. I understand that. We can't do that. If If this were summer, you could go home and try it yourself. Walk across the surface of your pool or your nearest lake. It's not going to work. You will sink. Water, as far as I know, is a liquid, and we are mostly solids made up of a lot of water, but we, we, we're going to sink. That's the point. It is a miracle. And I think if our disciple friends, they, they know this, which is why their reaction is they freak out. These are, these are 12 men who are hardy fishermen, and they see Jesus walking towards them in the middle of a storm, walking on the surface of the water, and they freak out. They're scared. They're terrified. Their first reaction is that this is a ghost. Again, maybe they forget they're Christians at this point. Maybe they just go back to pagan religion and like, yep, that's a ghost. What do we do? Ah, I don't understand. Probably in the middle of the storm, their fears are heightened. But also, who does that? No one does that. People don't walk on the surface of the water. And how does Jesus react to this? He says, take heart or have courage, can translate. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Our, our, wor- our word here for take heart, tharseo, means to be firm or to be resolute in the face of danger or in adverse circumstances. It means to take courage. So I'll put it this way. True faith is courageous faith. 
True faith is courageous faith. Jesus saying, guys, it's me. You believed in me, it's me. Just stop, take faith, it's me. Be encouraged, be encouraged, have courage. They can't believe their eyes. It doesn't make logical sense to them and they lose their faith momentarily. But, but note very carefully what Jesus says in response. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Why shouldn't you be afraid? Because it's me. That's why you shouldn't be afraid. And that's just, not just the American Christianity, really, that we neuter Jesus to be, right? We, we, we say Jesus most of the time in America as this kind, gentle person, accepting of all, no matter what, this rather American-looking tough guy, besides the fact that he was a Middle Eastern Jew, we Americanize him to have feathered back hair and this lamb slung over his shoulders or something like that, and he's always around little kids and just everything's nice, and that's not the way the Bible presents Jesus to be. Jesus is God, and we try to get our arms around who Jesus is and what it is, but we've got to remember how the Bible proclaims him to be. We shouldn't be afraid here. Why? Not because Jesus is a man. That's what he's saying. He says, you shouldn't be afraid because it's me. I'm the Messiah, remember? We shouldn't be afraid because I'm God. And this passage proclaims that in several ways. First, obviously, he's doing a miracle. He's walking across the water. People don't do that. That's God stuff. He's walking across the water. He's doing another miracle. Jesus does miracles to prove that he is God. It's not just that he missed his ride and he's trying to catch up to the guys in the boat, right? This is an actual miracle. It's important. But second, God is specifically said in the Old Testament in several places to be the one walking on the water, demonstrating his sovereignty over creation. So Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He's calling to mind in the disciples' mind these passages from the Old Testament, like Isaiah 43, 16, that tells us, Lord makes a way, Yahweh makes a way in the sea and a path in the waters. And Job 9, 8, that tells us that he tramples the waves of the sea. And Psalm 77, 19, that tells us that the way of God was through the sea and his path was through the great waters. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here. He's saying, disciples, you remember all these things you learned in Jewish Sunday school about God making a way through the waters and walking? What am I doing right now? You shouldn't be afraid because I am God. The disciples had seen Jesus do many miracles by this point. What freaked them out most was now he was doing stuff that they knew only God should do. And they're staring at him once again. Who is this man? A third way we come to believe that Jesus is God in this passage is actually hiding in, in the Greek. Jesus tells them to not be afraid, he says, because it is I. Literally in the Greek, it's ego eimi, which means I am. And if you were to take the, the Greek translation of what the Old Testament was, which was their Bible back then, written in Greek, the common language, you would run into a passage translated in Exodus chapter 3, and even in English we can see it. This is God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. In Exodus 3, starting in verse 13, he says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said to, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, Moses, I am has sent me to you. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing because he's using that exact phrase that is translated. When Jesus walks through the waters and Jesus says, look, I'm doing what Yahweh was supposed to do. And then he says, I am. They know exactly where that's coming from. You ask me, it's not the wind and the waves that's freaking them out. It's not really so much the fact that Jesus is walking on the water. It's that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is God before them. And Jesus makes that apparent. This is why Jesus says, guys, do not be afraid. It's me. I'm here. I'm God. Jesus, the Messiah. Take courage. Believe it. Faith is courageous belief. And so church, where do we need this courageous belief? Where do we need this courageous faith? Is it to stand on what you know to be true in a culture that has turned against him? Is it courage to obey God in an area that's been in sinful defeat for far too long? Is it courage to continue to stay in the daily battle of just trying to parent faithfully? Is it courage to say the hard truth to a friend that needs to hear it? Is it courage to carve out the time for devotion, for spiritual disciplines like silence and solitude and prayer because you believe they're important? Is it courage to see Jesus as he truly is? Is it courage to see Jesus as not just a friend, not just a co-pilot, not just somebody that's going to help you achieve your dreams, but to submit to him as Lord and God? How would that transform our lives if we believe Jesus in our hearts, not just to be our Savior, but God and our Lord? That's courageous faith. What would we do then? What would we do in those moments like the disciples when we're prone to give in to fear, worry, and anxiety, and Jesus shows up and he says, do not be afraid, I'm here. Wouldn't that change everything? Wouldn't that change that moment that you say, it's Jesus, it's God. He has limitless resources, he has limitless knowledge, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent. That would be a courageous faith. Let's see what the disciples, especially what Peter does in expressing that faith and courage. In verse 28, chapter 14, Peter answers him, of course it was Peter, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out onto the water. And he says, Jesus says to Peter, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Peter, we might be tempted to think of Peter as an impulsive kind of little, little kid, and he kind of has that reputation, right? You know, we have that scene in the garden where, you know, or even before the garden where he's like, I will never, never reject you, Jesus. And then he turns around and rejects him three times, right? The scene in the garden when they come to arrest Jesus, and he's like, revolution, and he grabs a sword and hacks off some guy's ear, and then he's denying Jesus three times just a few hours later. This isn't Peter seeing Jesus walk on the water and going, cool, can I do that too? That's not what this is. Other commentators translate this as Peter saying, Lord, 
since it's you, command me to come out there on the water, and I will. I think we see faith in Peter here that says, yeah, that is Jesus. Yes, he is the Messiah. And since that is you, command me to come out on the water. I want to walk there too. And Jesus, or Peter rather, has always been known as a man with courageous faith. And the thought of walking with Jesus in the middle of the storm is certainly representative of that. Jesus commands, agrees, and commands Peter to come. And Peter actually gets out of the boat in the middle of a storm and begins walking on the water to Jesus. But as they're in the middle of a storm, of course, he gets distracted by the wind and the waves all around him. They look at the wind and the wa- he looks at the wind and the waves and not at Jesus anymore. And what happens? He begins to sink. He begins to freak out. And he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus responds, sorry, Pete, this was your idea. You should have had more faith before you got out of the boat. Have a nice swim. He doesn't, does he? Jesus doesn't condemn Peter, church, for his small faith. Jesus doesn't condemn us for our small faith, does he? Instead, he reaches out his hand, he grabs him, he pulls him up, Not exactly the time for a little chat, but Jesus has a little chat and says, Peter, you of little faith, literally little faith one, like we'd speak to a child, why did you doubt? I thought you said you knew it was me. Why did you doubt? Why did you stop looking at every, why did you stop looking at me and start looking at everything else all around you? Why did you doubt? Everyone now is back in the boat, and and don't miss this part. The storm instantly ceases. It's technically the second time Jesus to date in Matthew has calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and once more, the seas grow completely quiet. And they probably had this awkward moment in the boat trying to process everything that just happened, and they're staring at each other saying, well, that just happened. I don't, what do we do now? Peter was just walking. Jesus was there walking on the water. Peter came out walking on the water. He almost drowned. Then Jesus saved him in the storm, and now it's calm. And just, what just happened? And the disciples' first reaction is what? what is, look at the text, church. What is the disciples' first reaction? 33. Those who are in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Who's Jesus? Not just our buddy. Not just our, our Savior, The disciples know beyond a shadow of a doubt what they just saw with their own two eyes. This is God, and this is God in the flesh, and they worshiped him. They would be violating the first commandment if they were worshiping something other than God, would they not? Strictly commands, you shall worship no other gods before me. They're good Jews, they know that, but they worship Jesus as God. Meanwhile, as they're worshiping God in the boat, as we read, the, the boat then lands in Genesaret. Look at uh, 34 and uh, to the end there in 36. And when they had crossed over, so this is all happening, they're still sailing. They came to land at Genesaret. <clears throat> and the men of that place recognized him. They sent around to all that region and brought him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. And so these guys are still sailing. They're trying to get across the lake. I have a map. I forgot my pointer, so we'll have to use your imagination here. We're up at the top of that. 
that little top right corner says Bethsaida. So that's where they were. Most likely, guys think that's most likely where they were for the feeding of the 5,000. And then that red part says Genesaret. So they probably wanted to go to Capernaum, which is right over that. So they probably wanted to stay up towards the north where it's not as wide, right, to get across, especially if a storm comes. But they most likely got blown a little bit off course. And they most likely ended up a little farther south than they had wanted in Genesaret. And we know that because really Jesus had no ministry in Genesaret. As far as we know, this is the first time Jesus has ever been there. But Jesus, what happened? What does our text say? That Jesus gets there, he gets on the shore, and people recognize him instantly. He's never been there before. But they know that Jesus, the Messiah, just landed on their shore. And what did they do? They call around to all their people and they say, he's here. Hundreds, maybe thousands of the sick show up. And they, they, they believe to the extent so much that this is Jesus, the Messiah, that they're clamoring to get close to him. And if they can just touch the hem of his garment, that's all they want. If they just touch his robe, that they would be healed. And the text says that indeed many of them were. Peter recognized God and got out of the boat. The disciples knew what it meant and they fell on their faces and they worshiped God. Jesus lands in a strange town and people recognize him as God, as Jesus the Messiah. And what's the common thread? They take action. True faith is an active faith. True faith is an active faith. And sometimes we can get tempted to reduce Christianity to a set of private beliefs. Like, this is what I believe. These are my things. Church, our faith is personal, but it was never meant to be private. Our faith is personal, but it was never meant to be private. These people are not demonstrating a private faith. They are demonstrating a public, active faith in who Jesus is. Look at the events again. Peter risks his life and limb literally jumps out of the boat in a storm. <clears throat> Sorry. It's cancer, the gift that keeps on giving. <clears throat> we see Peter jumping out of the boat, literally risking life and limb to be with Jesus. We also see Peter what taking his eyes off of Jesus and then focusing on the events around him and sinking Oh, how this is us, isn't it? Despite our doubts, God still reaches out like he just reached out to Peter and doesn't condemn us for our small faith, but then just reaches in and helps us. How many times do we take our eyes off Jesus and look to the wind and to the waves and to the fear and the worries and anxieties and there render our faith at that point inactive? Look at the mercy and the grace of God despite the weakness of Peter. Look at the mercy and the grace of God in us. That we have those moments where we are weak and where we are distracted and we take our eyes off Jesus and yet he doesn't condemn us for our small faith. He rescues us. And Jesus has already told us that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not snuff out. Instead, he strengthens us. He fans that smoking reed or flax into flame. 
But church, we have a responsibility, and it's not to have a passive, private faith. It's an active faith. We actively believe in the hope only found in Christ, which means we fight off trusting in anything else that we believe to the level that we believe in Jesus Christ. And Peter sunk when he gave in to the deeper fear of what? Everything else around him, instead of who was right in front of him. The people of Genesaret, where Jesus, again, reportedly had never been until now, lands on their shore, and they all come out in full active faith. Why? Believing that he is who he says he is, that they would be saved, that they would be healed, unwavering focus on Jesus. And likewise, church, we have to actively trust in Christ, and that means we have to have an unwavering focus on Jesus as our highest priority. Sure, we have jobs and kids and school and everything else, but don't look at the everything else, church. That's where, we go. That's where we go wrong. We look at the everything else, and Jesus says, you should be focusing on me. It's me. I'm here. Do not be afraid. Actively look to Jesus. Jesus has to be the one we look to in the midst of everything else around us day in and day out. There's a passage in Hebrews that I put in your Bibles, or in your bulletins, rather. Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, we're surrounded by a great number of witnesses. Those we run the the race with, like our brothers and sisters here today at Highlands Bible Church, those that have gone before us, the saints of the past, people watching us from the sidelines, unbelieving friends and family and neighbors. The world is watching us to see where our true faith really is. And the author of Hebrews tells us clearly the way to an active faith is to lay aside the weights, the things that hold us down from running hard, the overloaded schedules that don't have time for the spiritual disciplines that we need, the debt that chokes out our generosity, the habits that drive others away instead of driving them to us and the witness we have for Christ. Hebrews tells us to mortify sin, not to manage sin. This is to kill it, to stop looking to comforts or material things or status, stop looking to idols to fill a spot that only Jesus can. That's the active faith. And most of all, Hebrews then points us again to Jesus. This is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews calls us to go where Jesus has gone. We forget that. We can do this. Why? Because Jesus did it first. Because Jesus knows what it's like to live a life of faith as a human being because he was truly human and he was truly God. Jesus knows what Mondays are like. He knows what it is like to have the stresses and the, and the pulls on us from this world and sin. He understands it. We do not have a high priest that's unable to sympathize with us. He knows that in his humanity but he's over and above it in his deity. And Jesus already passed through the waters. He did what no one else could do. He took our sins to the cross. And it says he endured that. 
He despised its shame. Church, he conquered it. He rose again from the dead. Hebrews also tells us that after he did that, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down. He went before us. He's the founder, the perfecter of our faith. He expressed perfect faith in God the Father where Peter did not, where we do not, and just take a sigh of relief and realize we do not have to have perfect faith. Can we just breathe a little sigh of relief? Because I think as Americans, we're just like performance-minded. We do not have to have perfect faith because Jesus was the one who had perfect faith. Jesus was the one with perfect, active faith. We can just shed the temptation to be awesome all the time because Jesus was awesome in his perfect, perfect faith. We don't have to have it, but we do have to have a courageous faith. We do have to have an active faith. We do have to have a sincere faith in Jesus. And that's where we get to land. The main point of this miracle and the healings that follow is it's not just a pep talk to have more faith. It's not that Jesus calls me out on the waters to the great unknown where feet may fail to keep my eyes above the waters where oceans rise. I would be misinterpreted. Thank you to the three people that got that. I would be misinterpreting the passage if I stood up here and said, just have more faith. Let's close in prayer. That doesn't help anyone except put more pressure on us, doesn't it? It's not what we're talking about here. The point of this passage, church, is that Jesus is God, and therefore, look to Jesus. This passage tells us what Hebrews tells us. Look to Jesus, church, for his perfect faith. Like Peter did, like the people of Genesaret did, but this is critical. We look at Jesus as Scripture declares him to be God in the flesh. Know Jesus in this way, church. And if I had to boil it down for us <clears throat> this morning, I would say it this way. True faith is knowing Jesus as God. True faith is knowing Jesus as God. Not just knowing Jesus as a co-pilot, or our best friend, or the one to help us achieve our dreams, Scripture says he is way more than that. And today's passage tells us that Jesus is God. And if he's God, church, that changes everything, doesn't it? It has to. That's why it's a first-rank heresy to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Because if you take away Jesus being God, everything falls apart. Jesus has to be God. The Bible declares Jesus as God. And so, therefore... True faith is knowing Jesus as God. The strength of our faith is not determined by us. It's determined in the object of our faith. Peter, when his eyes were fixed on Jesus, he wasn't worried about the storm around him, was he? But as soon as he took his eyes off Jesus and worried about the storm, then he started to sink, and the storm overcame him. The people of Genesaret believed that if they could just touch the robe of Jesus himself, they would be healed. Why? Not because he's a magician, because he's God. Our faith is not something that we can just muster up inside ourselves, church. We've got to divorce ourselves from that American mindset that says, I've just got to be better at this Christian thing. Look to Jesus. That's what we have to do. 
What does that look like in our day-to-day? We look to Jesus, the object, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, like Hebrews said. God has given us the object of our faith in his son, Jesus, and our faith is only as strong as the object of our faith, and it has to be Jesus. And so it's worth asking. It's kind of corny, but I'll say it anyway. How big is your Jesus? What, what role does Jesus play in your life? Is, is he just something that, somebody that's there that you hope makes your day go better or you actually submitting to him as God? Do you trust this Jesus that we read about this morning, the one who walks on the water, the one that calms the storm, the one that heals people with just a thought? Or is Jesus some other kind of force in your life that is merely relegated to helping you do what you want to do? What you think is important in your life is Jesus is supposed to exist to make our lives easier, and then when he doesn't, you question his job performance. Or is Jesus, church, God of your life? Is Jesus Lord of your life? Is Jesus the great I am, as he declared himself to be, in such a way that then all of our lives are filtered through such a courageous and active faith based on who Jesus is. Our worldview, does that stem from Jesus being God? The way we look at politics or government policy or the million decisions we have to make every day, does it affect our marriages, our parenting? How would we be transformed if we had the faith of Peter to actually get out of the boat because we knew Jesus was God and he was there in the middle of the storm? And it's not just the fact of getting him to calm the storm, it's to be with Jesus in the storm. Church, one of the many mysteries of the gospel is just Jesus is not only the transcendent God who is everywhere and in all things and through all things, he's also our imminent and personal friend. And if American Christianity is guilty of many things, it might be guilty of this a lot, that we're way more over here as Jesus being our friend at the expense sometimes of Jesus being the transcendent God of the universe that the Bible claims him to be. It's not one or the other. It's both. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of who Jesus is. He's not just this distant God that's over all things, that created all things, that's sovereign over all things, that knows all things. He's also with us. That's the point of Christmas, right? Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we celebrate. He is coming to us in the storm. He is in the boat with us. He lands on the shores of our hearts and lives and seeks to love us with a gentle and humble love. But church, we have to trust him. And we have to trust him as he revealed himself to be in the Bible, as God. True faith is that, knowing Jesus as that God. Let's pray that we can walk in this. Let's pray that we understand this more in the millions of little ways that we're called to make these decisions in every day and how our view of God then plays a huge part in that perspective. Father, we thank you that we can be in your word today. We thank you for the grace that you've given us in providing this, another famous account. Lord, so often we can even turn these accounts around and make them to be about ourselves. And Lord, we know that you exist for the glory of yourself, the glory of God the Father. And in that, you glory in bringing people to you, people who are weak 
people who fail to trust you, people who want to trust you for the first time and are maybe taking that step. But Lord, empower us then, not, not because of the level of faith in our own hearts, but because of the object of our faith being you. Lord, strengthen our hearts to believe. Would we say like the man with the boy that needed to be healed, I believe, would you help our unbelief? May we trust you as God and Lord of our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.